everyone, and welcome to another Imperial Business Healthcare podcast episode. Uh, I'm Hugh Williams. I'm Director of Undergraduate Studies in Life Sciences. Um, we are delighted to welcome to Imperial, indeed to welcome back to Imperial, Samene Pangalos, an Imperial Biochemistry alumnus who is currently Executive Vice President Biopharmaceuticals, R&D at AstraZeneca. So a very warm welcome, Samene, and thank you for joining us this morning. Mene, thank you for joining our podcast. Good morning, it's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. Uh, we have to say to our students that uh, the recording comes from a live event from June last month, uh, Life Science and Business School, focused on, on your career and achievements. So, uh, so Mene, perhaps I could start by asking you to um, look back, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and the trajectory of your career to date. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks, Hugh, and it's a, a pleasure to be with you, and uh, it's a shame we can't do this face-to-face -face and actually please start posting your questions as soon as you feel you have any, because I'm sure we can jump to them sooner um, if you have them uh, and, and make this as interactive as possible. Um, it's interesting, I'm actually giving, I'm giving the uh, end-of-school speech at my daughter's uh, graduation in a few weeks' time, and um, as a consequence, I've reflected a little bit on my career and some of the advice I'm going to give uh, 11, 12 and 13 year olds as they uh, as they graduate from their um, first school. And um, it's interesting because you know, I'm, I'm a, I wanted to go to medical school, but I didn't get in. And so I ended up at Imperial through clearing. And what was interesting for me is that as a as a student, as a school student, I you know, was very mediocre. I didn't really enjoy what I was doing. And when I got to Imperial and did my biochemistry degree, it was the first time I actually really enjoyed something, both the way that I was being taught, but also the subjects that I was being taught. Um, and it was the first time I actually felt, you know, good at something without it necessarily being really hard work. And obviously doing a degree is hard work, please don't get me wrong, but it was, but it was, you know, fun. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed. I, I loved my time at Imperial. And what what I would say is that since that time, you know, I then went on and did a, a PhD. I then went and did a postdoc in America. Um, I, I was sponsored by a company called Merck, who gave me a taste and a flavour for what industrial research was like and the sort of difference between academic research and industrial research. And I realised quite early on. I wanted to do applied research. I wanted to turn science into medicine um, because I felt that, you know, that could have a big impact on society and it was something again that I was very interested in. Um, and then went backwards and forwards and I went from the US to Belgium to work for Janssen from, the Bel from Belgium back to the UK to work for SmithKline Beach and then became GSK, from GSK back to America to work for a company called Wyeth which became Pfizer, from Pfizer back to the UK to work for AstraZeneca. And the reason I say that isn't because um, uh, it's great that I've jumped from job to job or that's not, not implying that I can't keep a job. Uh, it was actually that every time I moved, I, and I wasn't even particularly looking for opportunities to move, but what I did do was when opportunities presented themselves, even if I was enjoying what I was doing and even if I was comfortable, I became comfortable to take a risk and do something different and actually get myself into an uncomfortable place. And that's probably one of the big learnings for me. One is just love what you do. I'm lucky that I get out of bed every morning and do a job that every day and every year is different. And I, and I love doing it because I think it has an impact and I think it's super interesting. But the other thing is that 
jumping you know into something new and challenging yourself and getting uncomfortable with what the next year is going to bring or what the next month is going to bring i think is really important so kind of a piece of advice i would give people is take risks right get yourselves in an uncomfortable position if you get if you're too comfortable you're not challenging yourselves enough and i think it becomes much more difficult to excel um so that, that I hope that gives you a little bit of a flavor what I've done over over the past few years. I'm think, thinking back to Imperial again. When you, when you first embarked on on a PhD, was was that a straightforward decision? Was it an obvious thing to do for you, or did did you did you consider other things at the time? Oh no, it wasn't at all obvious. No, so I was I, did, I was doing my biochemistry, and I actually probably wasn't realizing how well I was doing in my degree. You know, I ended up getting a first, but I wasn't expecting to get a first, and I, I was actually applying for jobs in you know sales jobs and marketing jobs and all sorts of things, but. When I got my first, I thought, oh goodness, maybe I need to think about doing something more because maybe I'm better at this than I think I am. Um, so no, I think when I got my first, I thought actually I want to go and do a PhD because it would be a shame not to. Um, and then w w as a consequence of that, I was, you know, I, I, the areas I was interested in were, were neuroscience and neuropharmacology. So I, I started applying for PhDs in that space and, and that and I was lucky to get sponsored, as I said, by Merck, which gave me that an experience of pharmaceutical research in addition to academic research. So that was for me the real trigger. And I had two very good supervisors who actually were very, very different in their approaches. You know, Derek Middlemiss was my industrial supervisor, a very balanced, very smart pharmacologist who was very thoughtful about career development. And then David Bowen, who was my academic um, supervisor for my PhD, um, who was, you know, incredibly sharp, uh, both both ways, right, in terms of pointed criticism, right, and being resilient, but also obviously in terms of intellect. Um, and so, you know, I, I got two things from my PhD. I got the experience of industry. And I got the experience of getting beaten up quite a bit by a pretty good uh, academic supervisor that made me, I think, quite tough and resilient and taught me how to present and how to critique and how to evaluate and how, again, not to become complacent about data. So, so would you, I mean, picking up on that, then would you, would you identify resilience as, a, as an important feature in, in an academic or industrial scientist? Oh, for sure. And, God, and I'm sure we'll talk about COVID later. I mean, resilience is something that you need, I think, if you're going to be a scientist in space because um, we fail so frequently and it's, you know, it's a, it's a tough environment. You have to get used to it. And it gets to this piece about this taking risks. You know, when, when you put yourself I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. I don't know if I'll be good enough for this job. I don't know whether I want to go and work in a country where no one speaks English or where English is the second language. Um, you become more resilient, right? Because you, you survive, you know, when you go through a merger, you know, why I've been acquired by Pfizer and come out of that the other end. When sites get closed down, you realize that you can survive stuff and actually you become stronger as a consequence. So I think that resilience is really important and giving yourself those experiences that get you into, I'll let say again, get you into areas of discomfort that you come out of means that you become stronger as an individual. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really important. Maybe I could ask um, a question that's been posted on the chat line to you, which relates to what we've been discussing. And um, what, what was your, um, Alicia asks, um, was your transitioning from PhD to pharmaceuticals uh, as intuitive as your transition into a PhD? 
Um, yes and no. So obviously you've got to find the job to get into pharmaceuticals, right? So you know, so I was doing my, I did my, I did a postdoc after I did my PhD. Um, my industrial supervisor, Derek, said to me, go and do a postdoc somewhere in a different country to get experience and to get a different culture experience. So I went to New York to work on um, the neuropharmacology of Alzheimer's and molecular biology of Alzheimer's disease. And from there, after a few years, I started just to look like people do in, in those days, you know, on nature and nature and science, on the back pages of nature and science, or the sports pages as we used to call them. Yes. And I just started applying for things. and. Um, and I was lucky in a way that I got this role at J&J and it was quite a senior role. I got, I got a, a group leader role um, in molecular, in, in an area completely unrelated to anything I'd done before, right? Yes. Molecular, molecular biology, and it was at the time when people were doing a lot of genome sequencing and EST sequencing. People were investing in things like human genome sciences and um, people were getting very excited about sequencing small ESTs that meant nothing and were patenting them all. But that transition, you know, being lucky to get that job and someone take a risk on me in terms of, you know, what I'd have done so far that they thought I could lead something, which I had no experience doing, that was for me a big jump. And once I'd made that jump, I then continued to make jumps um, that were, you know, quite significant, um, which accelerated my career. And of course, that that's also driven me in terms of how I look at people because people took risks on me when yes. I didn't really have experience. And so when I work with my leadership team now and all my leadership teams I had over the years, I really push them to identify talent early and to advance it quickly, not slowly, because if we don't, you know, I think about I would never be where I am today if people hadn't taken risks. I didn't go by one or two steps, you know, I jumped two or three steps several times to get to where I am. So I, I try and do that now with, with my talent, with my leadership team as well. Great. Thank you very much. I, I think I'll hand over to Yanis at this point. Yanis, uh, would you like to take yes, charge? Thanks very much, Hugh. Mene, if we go back to actually to your moves on the pharma and landing to AstraZeneca 10 years ago, can you just tell us how the company looked like when you first joined and how it changed over the last decade? Yeah, thanks, Jan. I've got 10 years. This is the longest. At least it shows I can hold a job down. So I have done this one for 10 years now um, and, and haven't haven't moved. Um, look, AstraZeneca, when, when I, the reason I was recruited into AstraZeneca was because the R&D organization wasn't in a very good place. And it wasn't a very good place by how you measured it. If you measured it by the number of widgets that it was you know, putting into the pipe, so numbers of candidates that were entering clinical development, number of phase one, pro it was actually one of the most productive companies in the world. Right? It was putting a lot of candidates into the clinic every year. It was actually the second most productive company in the world after Wyeth and Pfizer combined post the Wyeth Pfizer acquisition. And we were spending as a company from 2005 to 2010 about $5 billion a year in R&D. If you measured AstraZeneca during that same period by the number of medicines that were coming out, it was the second least productive company in the world. Um, and so what did that tell you? Well, we told you one thing, you know, the, the scientists were working on the wrong stuff. They were being, actually, they were being rewarded very well for delivering lots of widgets, even though they weren't delivering medicine. So the CEO at the time, a guy called David Benham, realized that, you know, that something wasn't quite right because we were spending an awful lot of money 
on R&D, but we weren't getting new drugs out, even though we were, you know, they were, the R&D organization was hitting its targets every year. Um, and so he, he brought me in to basically change that. And my, um, you know, discovery, which wasn't a discovery because I'd seen it in other companies as well, was the organization was focused on the volume of what it was doing, not the quality of what it was doing. And so we cut over half of the pipeline. We built a framework based on the decision making that I'd seen in other companies, but also seen in AstraZeneca of the things that we thought would be most important in helping trying to improve the probability of science being turned into a medicine, right? So, and it's very obvious stuff, things like, you know, how well do you understand the biology? So, right, we call it right target. How well do you understand the biology, the pathophysiology, and how do you try and prove or disprove, disprove your scientific hypothesis? Um, right, safety, you know, working out what your potential safety liabilities are in the research environment before you get into the clinic. So you weed problems out before you get into the clinic. Um, right patient, defining the patient population that's going to respond to the therapy versus the patient population that's not going to respond. So this framework, which we call the 5R framework, was trying to slightly stack the deck in our favor to improve our probability of success. And we've published it in Nature of Use Drug Discovery. For those of you that are interested, we've published the 2005-2010 data, which led to the 5R framework. And then we've published cohorts from 2012-2016, which show the impact of implementing the 5R framework. And our success rate has gone from what it was, 4%, from first in man to launch, to 2012-2016, we got up to about 20%. And the industry stayed flat at about 6 And if you actually measure our most recent uh, stats in Biofarm, we're up at 30% now. And as a company, we're, we're about 22, 23%. And the industry stayed pretty much flat, you know, four, five, six, seven percent. Now, what does that tell you? So it tells you two things. We've improved, right? We're now performing as one of the best R&D organizations in the world, which is great. So you can change your culture and you can change your productivity. Industry has stayed pretty much flat. Um, but irrespective of where you are, we're still bloody good at failing. So to your previous question, viewers, to resilience when you work in r d most of the time your projects fail right you don't, don't turn your science into medicine what we're trying to do is just fail a bit less yeah, right and, and actually you don't want to be you know do i ever want to get it to a success rate of 50 or 60 percent probably not because if we do it probably means we're not innovating enough and we're not taking enough risk but with success rates of 20 or 30%, our return on investment becomes very good. And actually, as a consequence, our share price goes up and ultimately we, turn, we do turn science into innovative medicines. And Mene, back to the changes and the 5R innovation, how easy was for you to just make all these changes in the company? And uh, I'm just focusing a little bit on the culture that was before your arrival. How easy was for you to change? No, not easy, I would say. I mean, so I think it's happened faster than anyone expected. In all, I had to, you know, we had to close a lot of projects down. I had to change a lot of leaders. I had to close sites. Um, we had to build really a very, very new field to the organisation. New, and actually, it was very the analogy I draw is because we were a very inwardly focused company as well. That was one of the big shifts that we made is we became much more open, much more outward focused, much more collaborative. Um, 
I remember when I first joined doing all of the you know, reviews of the pipeline and the projects with my then leadership team and people were constantly saying they were world class even though we weren't delivering medicines and I was asking well how do you judge that and it was well it's the best we've ever done and and, so, and my analogy is we were very good at the time of doing personal bests but personal bests when you're nowhere near a world record actually aren't that important right and 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 the shift if you think about the sporting analogy is i wanted our organization to be setting world records not personal bests pbs are good when you're getting towards world records but pbs when you're nowhere near a world record you know when you're when you're you know playing in division three or league two versus the premier league actually doesn't interest me that much so the shift culturally was how do we start becoming you know setting world records being in the premier league and the way you do that is by being much more open, being much more porous, having academic partnerships, moving to Cambridge. You can see the building behind me. That's our new Cambridge facility and really making yourself a partner of choice and cap capturing the world's brain, not just the AstraZeneca brain. And that's again one of the other cultural shifts we made was becoming much more collaborative and much more open with who we work and how we work and how we publish. As you know, Jan is, you know, we publish, you know, our scientists have to publish nature science and cell papers. That's part of their success metrics that I measure. And we now publish per R&D dollar more, more high impact papers in those journals in about 80 papers a year now, four or 500 papers total, but about 80 papers a year in nature, science, cell, um, and in those high impact papers. That, that means that your reputation goes up and people then want to work with you. And most of those papers are collaborations as well. Thanks, Mane. There are some questions also around uh, pandemic. So uh, if I could just ask you a very current uh, question. It's the pandemic. So do you think that we are out of the pandemic goods? What is yours and AstraZeneca expectations? No, no, I don't think we're out. I think we're getting out, right? I think, you know, if you'd ask me, so I think it's been a very, very difficult period for the world and something obviously that none of us have ever lived through before. I think if you'd asked me, you know, March 2020, would we be where we are today? I would have said you must be kidding, right? That we'd have as many vaccines as we do and therapeutics. And, you know, I think we're, we're much closer to the light at the end of the tunnel. But we still have a lot of people that aren't protected. We have variants of concern. Um, we've got to immunize the world, not just the wealthy countries. Um, but we're in a much better place than we were um, 10 months ago. So we're not out yet, but we're going in the right direction. And I'm optimistic that over the next 12 months, we'll have this under control and we'll be getting back to an, an area of you know, something more akin to normality. And could you just give us a glimpse into what was the last year for AstraZeneca as a whole, given the instrumental role that you played in this fight against COVID? Yeah, I think this has been by far and away the most difficult. You know, if you wanted a crash course in MB, in, in, in business, you know, in kind of uh, leadership development, working on a pandemic is definitely it in terms of intensity i i've never experienced anything close to it not you know any, anything anywhere near close to it neither has pascal our ceo neither has our board as, as doing this and i think when we embarked 
And it might be worth taking a pause to just think about how we got into this as a company, because we're not a vaccine company either. Um, but when we embarked on this, I don't think we really knew what we were letting ourselves in for or what we were going to experience. So, you know, we have a very big business in China. We have, a, you know, tens of thousands of employees there. We're the number one pharmaceutical company in China. So we were getting an inkling of what was happening via a Chinese business, that something was happening in Wuhan that initially we thought was going to be a Chinese problem. But relatively quickly, as we went into 2020, we realized it was going to be a global problem. And so we set up, and all the things we were worrying about at that time, we were worrying about making PPP available to people that needed it because we could see that there was a problem in terms of um, protective equipment. So we supplied something like 9 million masks to various countries around the world to help them deal initially in China, but then more widely. We then started to worry about um, our manufacturing plants um, and our pipeline. We wanted to make sure that our medicines weren't going to be disrupted in terms of continuing to supply cancer medicines and cardiovascular medicines and diabetes medicines to and respiratory medicines to people around the world. And we haven't missed a single day in terms of manufacturing or delivering any of our existing products. Then we started to look at within our pipeline, what were the things that might be able to have an impact on the disease? Um, so repositioning molecules. So we did drugs with you know, some of our leukemia drugs, some of our diabetes drugs, and we still have some of the things ongoing. Then we started an antibody program, which we can talk about later. We just had some results uh, this week from one of the first studies, which was an antibody program tackling specific SARS-CoV-2, building on our experience with RSV um, and flu and other things. And then finally, as a consequence of some of those things, um, we, we, I, we talked to Oxford about the vaccine and actually one more thing that we did was we started testing people initially in our labs to keep our people and our, and our um, plants safe. And then as a consequence of getting quite good at doing PCR testing, we also set up a PCR testing centre in Cambridge funded by the government to become one of the lighthouse labs for actually PCR testing in the country in the region. And, and that, that lab ended up not only setting up processes that have been used in all of the other testing centres, but also ran over a million samples you know, during the second wave that became very, very important in terms of understanding how the pandemic was progressing in the UK. And we're still today doing lots of testing in our labs um, to make sure we keep all of our people safe, including in the US and Sweden and other places as well. But as part of all of sort of that work, I was on various committees that were working on pandemic preparedness, vaccines, therapeutics, etc. And I heard about the vaccine that Oxford had and that Andy Pollard and Sarah were working on. And I spoke to John and I knew they were trying to find a partner and they hadn't found one. And actually they weren't happy with the kind of conversation they were having. And so I said you know, to John, you know, do you think it'd be something that would be useful for us to do with you? And he said, you know, that could be cool. That could be a good thing to do. So I called our CEO, Pascal, and I said, you know, what about us doing something with, uh, with, with Oxford? We've never done a vaccine, but you know, I think we could help them both from a development perspective and a manufacturing perspective. And within three weeks, we've done a deal. You know, gulp, literally gulp, right? And, and of course, we also agreed to do it not for profit because we felt that given where the pandemic was, actually making money on this wasn't the important driver. Getting out of the pandemic was the important driver. 
Um, and so that, that's how we got into it. And then every day since has been very difficult. <laughs> um, but and it's been difficult not because we've been learned because you're doing thing, you know, literally it's flying the plane while you're building it. You know, we inherited some very good studies from Oxford, you know, running across the, you know, the UK, Brazil and Africa. The men, the readouts were more complicated than, let's say, the Pfizer study, which was a single US study. Um, we had to embark upon a US study as well. We had to learn the manufacturing process and because we were doing it a not-for-profit and wanting to make sure that the developing world was getting it as much as the developed world. Um, we had to set up manufacturing sites in over 20 places. We've got vaccine being supplied now in over 160, 170 countries. We're the biggest supplier to the developing world. You know, 98% of the COVAX supplies are AstraZeneca vaccine. I think over 90% of the vaccine deployed in India is AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, so I, I think, you know, we've had, I think so far administered 550 million doses. If, you, if I said to you that in 12 months, we're going to deliver 550 million doses to people, we're going to have supplied 98% of the lower middle income countries. We're going to supply as much as we have in Europe and the UK. We're going to have a vaccine that gives you um, over 90% efficacy against hospitalizations and severe disease, even against variants of concern such as the Delta variant. You know, I think we would have said thank you very much. Um, but I, I'm incredibly proud of what we've achieved. Um, and I think, you know, our, our folks have been working literally night and day for the past 12 months 24-7 every day of the week to get to where we are. And I think it's tremendous what we've done. I think it's tremendous what Pfizer have done, Moderna and J&J, it's tremendous what all the companies have done. But I'm particularly proud of what we've done because we've done it not for profit. We've done it not being experienced. And actually when you think about, I think that's something to be proud of. Even though it was incredibly difficult and continues to be incredibly difficult. And I have to have a smile on my face though. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mene. Uh, Hugh, I'll hand over to you for some follow-up questions. Uh, I think uh, there's quite a few questions appearing in the chat line now, so I think I might, might go to a couple of those, um, because one, one of them is highly relevant to what you've been talking about, Mene. You mentioned you've got a lot of business in, in China, and we've got a, um, a question from a student who is um, actually doing an internship at the Shanghai office of AstraZeneca this summer, uh, focusing on collaboration with biotech startups. And they're very excited about it, of course. and. Um, the question is, uh, what advice would you give to those of us entering the workplace for the first time? The workplace in terms of, the, 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 you know, that's not a pandemic question, it's the, those of us entering the workplace literally in any in a normal time. I, Look, I think so. I think be open, be open, you know, it's, so every day is a development experience. Every day, you know, use every day to learn something. Uh, to experience something, to push yourself, to challenge yourself. So, in my God, China is an amazing place and, and the growth that we're seeing in China and the opportunities there and actually the innovation that's starting to happen in China, which is moving from a Me Too um, culture where kind of they're adopting pre-existing innovations and incrementally improving them to actually becoming an innovation-led country. I think is tremendously exciting in terms of the biotech industry and the life science industry there. Um, so, you know, grab the opportunities, learn and, you, you know, I, I say to people that want to go and do, you, you might not like this because you, you, you were in Pyrenees and you want to be supporting MBA, but 
and Yanis is doing an MBA, but pe people come to me because they say, oh, I want to go and do this course, or I want to do this course, or that. For me, every day is a course, right? Doing the vaccine is the biggest ex development experience I could have possibly done over the past year. You know, interacting with governments and regulators and politicians and media and things that you, you can't ever learn in a course, right? So my advice to you is soak it up, soak every opportunity up, see what other people are doing, learn from them. You know, surround yourself with smart people, hopefully even smarter than you are, to learn from them, um, and and uh, and just enjoy the experience and never be never get comfortable. That would be that would be my advice. Um, Thank you. So, Mene, as a final question, listening now to to the recording from the event, uh, what will be your final suggestions for a student who wants to pursue a career in pharmaceuticals? Um, well, first of all, you've got to make sure that you are you 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 love it. You're going to enjoy it and love it. I think whatever you choose to do, you need to make sure you enjoy and love it. I would say. Um, take risks and find new challenges and opportunities to make sure you keep on challenging yourselves and learning something new every year. Um, and finally, probably be a great team player because without great teams and without great people around you, you won't ever individually be successful. To be successful in, in, in pharmaceuticals, I think in any career, you have to surround yourself with great people and great teams. So make sure that you, if you get a chance to recruit great people, recruit great people, but if nothing else, surround yourself with great people. And that I think will uh, help you become much more successful individually as well. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mene, for your time. My pleasure.